Welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Good evening and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting? Episode 3, Athletes. Now, what do I mean by athletes? I mean, we're going to talk tonight about athletes who later in their career became actors. And we're not just talking like TV actors or doing commercials or anything like that. Tonight, Scott and I are going to talk about athletes that became serious actors, whether it be in movies or television, because you can have a serious actor in both locations. So with that little bit of an intro, how's it going tonight, Scott? Not too bad, Chad. How about you? I am not one to complain, and I really don't have anything to complain about. (laughs) It's been about a month since we recorded last time, so we're going to just jump into this, I guess, tonight. And uh, we're going to kind of look at both sides. We're going to we're going to do some female athletes that have become actors and some male athletes that have become actors. Yes. Of course, everybody's aware of you know the the influx it seems from wrestling, professional wrestlers becoming actors. But we have very few that actually come from a wrestling background that we're going to talk about tonight. We have found them through everything from swimmers to include decathletes all other kinds of bodybuilders, um, martial artists. We're going to yep. be talking about a, a whole variety of them. So I'm going to kick this off tonight, if you don't mind, Scott. Not at all. All right, I'm going to kick this off tonight, and I'm going to go way back. So one of the first women that I could find that was an athlete that then became an actress was Esther Williams. Esther Jane Williams, who was born in 1921 and lived to 2013, was an American competitive swimmer and actress. Uh, Williams set multiple national and regional swimming records in her late teens as a part of the Los Angeles Athletic Club swim team. Unable to compete in the 1940 Summer Olympics because of the outbreak of World War II, she joined Billy Rose's Aquacade, where she took on the role vacated by Eleanor Holm after the show's move from New York City to San Francisco. While in the city, she spent five months swimming alongside Olympic gold medal winner and Tarzan star Johnny Westmuller. Williams caught the attention of MGM scouts at the Aquacade after appearing in several small roles alongside Mickey Rooney in a Andy Hardy film and future five-time co-star Van Johnson in A Guy Named Joe. Williams made a series of films in the 1940s and 50s known as Aqua Musicals, which featured elaborate performances with synchronized swimming and diving. She had a, a spanning career. When I was doing my research, she basically did two movies a year. Okay. Throughout her time. From 1945 to 1949, Williams had at least one film listed among the 20 highest grossing films of the year. In 1952, Williams appeared in her only biographical role as Australian swimming star Annette Kellerman in Million Dollar Mermaid, which went on to become her nickname while at MGM. Williams left MGM in 1956 and appeared in a handful of unsuccessful feature films, followed by several extremely popular water-themed network television specials, including one from Cypress Gardens in Florida. Williams was also a successful businesswoman. Even before retiring as an actress, she invested in a service station, a metal products plant, a manufacturing of bath bathing suits, and various properties, and a successful restaurant chain known as Trails. She lent her name to a line of swimming pools and retro swimwear, instructional swimming videos for children, and served as a commentator for synchronized swimming at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. That's just a quick roundout of her life. We can, we can kind of go through this. She was enthusiastic about swimming in her youth. Her older sister, Maureen, took her to Manhattan Beach and to the local pool. She took a job counting towels at the pool to pay the five-cent entry fee and while there, had swimming lessons from the male lifeguards. From then, she learned the male-only swimming strokes, including the butterfly, which she would later break records. She had a medley team that set a record for the 300-yard relay at the Los Angeles Athletic Club in 1939, and was also a national AAU champion in the 100-meter freestyle with a record-breaking time of 1 minute and 9 seconds. 
By age 16, Williams had won three U.S. national championships in breaststroke and freestyle swimming. She graduated from Washington High School in uh, 1939, where she served as class president and later president. However, Williams never trained in swimming while there. Uh, while Williams was working at I. Magnin, uh, she was contacted by Billy Rose's assistants and asked to audition as a replacement for Eleanor Holm in his Aquacade show. Williams impressed Rose, and she got the role. The Aquacade was part of the Golden Gate International Expo, and Williams was partnered with Olympic swimmer and Tarzan star Johnny Weissmuller, who, Williams wrote in her autobiography, repeatedly tried to seduce her. Despite this, Williams remained on the show until it closed on September 29, 1940. Williams had planned to compete in the Summer Olympics, like I said earlier, but was canceled due to the breakout of World War II. So let's talk some of her movies. Her first movie, which was alongside Mickey Rooney, was called Andy Hardy's Double Life. And she played a role called Sheila Brooks. Now, I'm not familiar with any of the Andy Hardy's movies, but I, it seems to be a series of movies that were done. I and mean, I don't know if Andy Hardy was the director. I don't know if it was just a character. You know, I, I'm not exactly sure. But she did a bunch of movies starting in 1942 and worked until 1961. Uh, which was her final movie called uh, Magic Fountain. But in there, she worked on things such as the Donna Reed Show, Dangerous One Wet, I just like the name of that movie, <laughs> I have no, uh, Million Dollar Mermaid, which I uh, talked about earlier, and, you know, just a bunch of these types of movies. She did mostly movies. Um, the only TV series, well, there was two of them. There was the Donna Reed Show, and then she did an episode for the Lux Video Theater series. I don't know what that is. Never heard of it. Let's get into, and, and, and this is something fun I found on these, on these, every one of them, I'll have a few of these trivia things. Before we go into that, do you have any questions about what I just went over? No, not really. I mean, uh, most people know the name of Esther Williams and are familiar with her as a swimmer and doing the swimming movies and everything with the synchronized swimming. Work. Right, and that's where I knew the name from, because when I was a kid, my mother would watch these movies. And I found them to be the most boring thing in the world. But that was still a name that I knew, and which is why I chose her. True. And you did mention one other thing she did besides acting, which is something that a lot of people associate athletes with once they've stopped competing, which is being a commentator on their sport. Yeah. Which is one of the things that in this particular episode we're not so much distancing ourselves because almost all of our athletes have served in that capacity at some point or another, but... We're not looking at athletes who became commentators. We're looking at athletes who then went into acting, not just cameos of themselves either. Right, right. Because there's a lot of actors who they get hired for a movie or something and they walk on and they're just themselves. Right. But uh, yeah, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on people who became, like I said in the intro, serious actors, either on television or on um, uh, in the movies. Or for that matter, uh, one of the guys that I have uh, did time on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Although, speaking of Broadway, one group of athlete actors, you could say, who are kind of hard to pin down in that, is it a cameo, is it really acting, were the members of the Green Bay Packers who were in Pitch Perfect 2. <laughs> because, yes, they were there as themselves, as the Green Bay Packers, but they actually sang and did part of the performances in this acapella battle that was going on with some of the other characters. Right, and I honestly don't know if they actually sang or if it was lip sync, but e even if it was lip sync, it was done very well. Yes, it was. So, on to the trivia. Excerpts from her 1999 autobiography in major American magazines revealed that her one-time lover, actor Jeff Chandler, was obsessed about dressing in women's clothing. Williams' revelations about Chandler angered many readers. The book also revealed Williams took LSD under a doctor's supervision after Cary Grant recommended it. Now, can you imagine saying that about actors today? Not, not only that, well, okay, another actor recommended it. Okay, um, we can go with that. that. That probably happens quite a bit. But the fact that it was under a doctor's supervision? Well, if you think about the history of medication development and drug use, especially among the rich and famous, a lot of times what are now considered illegal or controlled substances when they were first introduced were considered to have beneficial effects. For example, in the late 19th century in England, laudanum, opium, was prescribed by doctors much the way that Valium or Zoloft is today, as an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, 
it's supposed to calm the nerves. Well, it's the same as they would they would give you cocaine because you were lethargic. Right. So, so an LSD was originally developed as a medication. It wasn't developed as a psychotropic. Okay, well, that makes sense, I guess. In the 1950s, she was known as the American Mer- America's Mermaid. She co-produced Aquaria, Aqu- Aquaria, a Aquaria, Las Vegas, maybe. Aquaria, a Las Vegas water spectacle set to open in 2003. Like I said earlier, she lent her name to a brand of swimming pools that are still sold today, the Esther Williams Pools. I have never heard of them, have you? Nope, I have not. So maybe they're still sold today, but maybe they're not all that... You know, at least maybe not in our area, because... Let's face it, Wisconsin's not big on pools. No, and the people <laughs> that have them tend to, uh, after a short amount of time, hate the fact that they have a pool. Right. You do realize I have a pool. I do. Yes. <laughs> and I've heard you complain about the fact that you have a pool. Yes, I, I do indeed. <laughs> she received her first screen kiss by Mickey Rooney and Andy Hardy's Double Life. She was inducted into the Swimming Pool Hall of Fame in 1967. She was a national champion in the 100-meter freestyle and was a favorite to make the 1940 Olympics team. I think that's about it. I mean, there's... uh, Oh, she was awarded a star of fame, or a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 1560 Vine Street in Hollywood, California on February 8th, 1960. And inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1966. So what do you got for us? All right, well... My first doesn't go quite that far back. He has been acting for a while, but he has very recently, as of this most recent Academy Awards, become kind of a hot topic in the news. All right, hit me with it. Now, um, his name when he was born was Mahershala Hashbaz Gilmore. Wait. Yes. Mahershala Hashbaz Gilmore. 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 Okay. He was born in 1974 in Oakland, California. To Mr. and Reverend Gilmore. His mom was a Protestant minister. And I, when I first looked at this, I, I assumed, uh, because I knew he was Muslim. Right. So I assumed that his name, his full name, was Arabic. And it's actually not. It's from the Bible. Okay. It means child of good omens. He acts under the name of Mahershala Ali. Okay. And the reason most people are hearing of him now is because he just won Best Supporting Actor for his role as Juan, the sympathetic drug dealer and somewhat conscience of the film in Moonlight. Okay. Which also did really well at the Oscars. All right. I'm not familiar with the movie, but... No, it's it's interesting. I haven't seen it. I may end up seeing it because what I've been hearing about it makes me think that it's something that I would appreciate, and it might be something that I would incorporate into my literature and film class. Okay, that makes if I sense. Can find a way, but that's why you watch so many movies, right? It is. So, uh, and actually, I teach another movie that he's in. Oh, okay. So, and I'll I'll touch on that in a little bit. But uh, from what I know about Moonlight, the the main theme of it is it's this uh, journey of a young man in Miami who's trying to deal with the fact that he's gay in a time and place where that's not yet socially accepted. I, I think it's like the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. So, so they were starting to push out and be more uh, noticed and more accepted in certain areas, but it was still a hard time for him. Correct. And in, in fact, on the medical standpoint, uh, fans of Grey's Anatomy might remember one episode where there was a, a flashback to... Um, Dr. Gray Sr., Meredith's mom, who in the series is suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia is in a home. But there's a flashback episode to uh, the early 80s, I think 1982, where they have a mystery patient who's suffering from some disease, and they end up diagnosing it as GRID. GRID. G-R-I-D is the acronym for it. Okay. And that stands for Gay-Related Immune Disorder we would end up renaming it as AIDS. Right. But at the time, the stereotype and prejudice about it was that it was specifically limited to the gay community. Which we found out real quick was not true. True. But they didn't understand anything about it. They were concerned that you could catch it just by being in the same room with someone, breathing the same air. So the precautionary lengths they took by today's standards are ludicrous. But it, it really gave that episode I really enjoyed, even though I don't really care for Grey's Anatomy that much. 
because it, it gave a really good insight and treated the paranoia of that era very faithfully. And, and it showed the some of the underlying thought processes that even though they led to horrible stereotypes, at the time, the people in those situations were just reacting to something completely new to them. And they were the type of people who weren't used to having new things. They were the doctors, they were the educated elite. So for something to be unknown and something they couldn't get a handle on, it scared the crap out of them. Oh yeah. So, I and can... as most people do react when they're scared, they, they react by closing off and trying to distance themselves and labeling something as an other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy, but that might be actually one of the episodes I may ask my wife. I'm like, which one is this? And she can, cause that actually, you know, um, is, is something that I think as we all get older, cause even when we were children, you know, you didn't, there was, you didn't know about gay people. I mean, nobody talked about it. It right. wasn't something that was part of our lexicon. You know, we used to use as teenagers, we would use some of these really vile stereotypical words for gay people. But then when you look back on it, we didn't mean it as being a gay person. It was just, you were just being a jerk or whatever. So we'd call you, you know, and I'm not going to say the right. word because it's it's yeah. not worth it. it. It just, you know, and to see where the world has come and how accepting the world has become of people who have a different sexual preference. To me, it, it's amazing. Uh, the, the fact that it's happened in such a quick amount of time. Yes. So. So, so you just won Best Supporting Actor. And um, my little trivia bit on him is that he accomplished two firsts. Okay. With that. Uh, the first was he is the first former Division One athlete because he played basketball at uh, St. Mary's College of California. Okay. Which he actually attended on a basketball scholarship. Okay. But he decided to pursue – first he decided he didn't want to pursue basketball as a career because he didn't like how the athletes were treated in the NCAA – and also what he saw in the NBA. So did he time. give up his scholarship then? No, he, he played through his senior year. Okay. He graduated okay. with a degree in communications. But in his senior year, he actually acted in a few things and won an apprenticeship with the California Shakespeare Theater. And that really launched him on acting. It, it really dug in. So he's the first Division One athlete to have won an Oscar. All right. And he's the first Muslim actor. Because even though he was born... Protestant. To a Protestant minister right. and her husband, uh, he ended up converting to Islam, which is when he changed his name to Maharshala Ali. Okay, that's so. pretty. That's pretty standard, either Ali or Muhammad or mm -hmm. something like that, when it comes to to people that convert to becoming Muslim. Right. He then went on to NYU, to their uh, acting studio, and actually uh, received his master's in acting from their acting school. Okay. So he he is not only a very prolific actor, and I, I think he's a, a very good actor. He's a very accomplished and studious actor as well. So right, he, he studied his art. It. Yeah, he yeah. studied his art, he studied his craft, and became what he wanted to become. Yes. Uh, unlike some actors out there who just kind of fall into it because they're naturally good at it. And it sounds like from what you're saying is he's got a talent as well as knowing the craft. Yes. Because there are, and you can see it when you watch movies and things like that, there are actors that know the craft, but they're not always necessarily the best actors. Yes. A lot of times you find them in supporting roles. Yes. Because they adapt very well to the leads. They work well with different lead actors who maybe have that more raw charisma, raw talent that hasn't been molded by specific procedures. Right, right. Where you, and that's what I was going to get to, is then you have the actors that are just those natural actors, and they may have taken classes here and there or whatever, but they're really just, it's natural. It feels like when they play a role, they become that character. Now, sometimes that's detrimental to their health and their, their personal well-being, Yes. but on the screen, mm -hmm. it, it sells everything. Right. Well, case in point, Heath Ledger. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I have a former, because as you know, I have a degree in theater. Right. One of my former professors used to be in an acting company that Val Kilmer was in prior to him breaking into it big. Right. And Val is supposed to be a, uh, what do they call him? A uh... method actor? Yes. 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 Um, he, my friend and former professor um, was talking to a, another 
friend of his who was on set with Val Kilmer during the filming of The Doors. And he said that Val insisted that everybody call him Jim because he was playing the role of Jim Morrison. And that once he started, he never broke character. Now in the Jack Nicholson film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you find out that a lot of the other actors, including a young Danny DeVito and a young Christopher Lloyd, got so into their characters as mental patients that some of the doctors at the hospital where they were filming some of the scenes were having trouble distinguishing, okay, are these people the actors or are these people the actual patients who are the extras in the background? Wow. Yeah, so, that's that's something. Mm -hmm. So anyways, getting back to Ali, uh, as I said, he's very prolific. He's uh, currently in two Netflix original series, uh, House of Cards and Luke Cage. He's done a few movies. Uh, he was in... Parts 1 and 2 of Hunger Games Mockingjay. Okay. The movie that I teach that I've seen him in is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Okay. Uh, with Brad Pitt uh, based on the F. Scott Fitzgerald short story. He's also done uh, major network TV. By major network, I, I'm defining as NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox. He had a recurring role as a doctor on Crossing Jordan. He was one of the main characters in the sci-fi noir series The 4400, and uh, he was in the sci-fi series Alphas. He also did a short-lived series that, that I thought had a lot of potential, but it, it didn't have a good production team behind it, Threat Matrix. And, as a, another indication of his versatility, he is also a produced rapper. He raps under the name of Prince Ali. He's released one album, but when he weighed the pros and cons of promoting his rap career and going on tour versus being a productive actor, he decided to stick with acting. Fair enough. God, now I just want to sing that song from Aladdin. Prince Ali, Ali is he. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. That'll probably be the last singing you ever hear on this podcast. Well, not from me. I'm not very good, but I love to do it. Well, there you go. Got anything else, Adam? Nope. Over to you. All right. So my next actor, and, and I'm going to give you his birth name. I'm going to see if you can figure out who it is. And I'm guessing from the last name you'll be able to. Well, actually, from all of it, you probably will be able to. But Antonio Salvatore Ayadanza. Hmm. One of my favorite TV shows when I was growing up, mainly because of the young lady on it, was Who's the Boss? So I'm going to take a stab that this is none other than Tony Danza. It is Tony Danza. Born in 1951, he's an American actor and former professional boxer best known for starring in the TV series Taxi and Who's the Boss, for which he was nominated for an Emmy and four Golden Globe Awards. Uh, in 1998, Danza won the People's Choice Award for Favorite Male Performer in a new television series for his work on the 1997 sitcom The Tony Danza Show, uh, which then they say here is not to be confused with his 2004 to 2006 daytime variety talk show of the same name. He was a professional boxer. He had a record of 9-3, nine, 9 knockouts, 7 in the first round. Uh, with all but one of his fights, wins and losses, ending in a knockout. So, basically, nine knockouts for him. He got knocked out twice and then lost a, a decision on another one. Long before being a stage and screen actor the and beloved misheard lyric subject. I'm trying to think what song that would be from. And it's right there I, in the back yeah. of my head. And I just Anyway, Tony Danza even considered a career in acting, he was showing people who the boss was on the mats and in rings all over New York and Iowa. As a teenager, the Long Island native was a bit of a troublemaker, and wrestling was one of the things that kept him in line. He was good at it and earned a scholarship at Iowa's University of Dubuque. That was where he first fell for the sweet science and failed to entirely stay out of trouble. There he boxed, not varsity, but on the streets, he says, and did great because they weren't used to New York rules. That's in quotes. I don't know what it means. I'm guessing that you fight dirty, but I'm just guessing here. People Magazine's Mark Donovan wrote in a 1979 profile on the actor. After earning his bachelor's in history at Dubuque, Danza returned to Long Island and spent a few years drifting between various gigs as a bartender and a mover before an argument with his mom inspired him to turn to Golden Gloves Boxing in 1975. In an effort to give his life some direction, his start in sanctioned Pugilism was promising. He won his first five amateur bouts by knockout, then ran into a guy who knew how to box and woke up in the shower, he quipped to people. On Dietard, he kept training under Chris, or I'm sorry, under Chicky Ferrara at the famed Gleason's Gym and turned pro in 1967. 
He quickly made a name for himself as either Tony Dangerous Danza or Tough Tony Danza, depending on the card, as a knockout artist to watch on the New York's club scene. But boxing fans and promoters were the, weren't the only ones keeping an eye on Tony. In 1977, a TV producer named Stuart Slow Shishlow walked into Gleason's looking for a fighter who could play a boxer-turned-aerobics instructor on a show that NBC was producing. He liked the look of Tony and asked for his number. A hooker named Anna Rosa, who used to hang out at the club, gave it to him. Why she had my number, that's another story we don't need to get into, Danza told Deadline when recording the, uh, recounting the story. She slow called Tony and, read, and, he, and Tony read for the part, but his mind was on other things. So at that point, he wanted to be in a, he wanted to be a professional boxer. In fact, when I was reading the background stuff during the time that he was on Taxi for the first few seasons, he was on Taxi. He was still a professional boxer. So he would go in between the two things, keep up with the boxing while he was still doing that. Well, it makes sense. I mean, like any athletic endeavor, if you go away from it for too long, it becomes really difficult to come back. They always say it's like getting on a bicycle, but it's really not. No. So the big things, his first uh, movie was called Going Ape, I believe. Unless I'm in... No, I'm wrong. It was The Fast Lane Blues uh, in 1978. Surprisingly enough, he played a character named Tony. In fact, uh, when I was reading through my stuff, the reason his name was Tony Banta on Taxi was because him being a new actor, the director thought there was a good chance he wouldn't answer to anything but Tony. And for a long time, I thought all his characters were named Tony. And so I started doing the, re- the, the, the research and found out that no, but the ones he's best known for were named Tony. So Taxi, I really like the Taxi series. I mean, I obviously didn't watch it in first run. Between Tony Danza and you've got people like Andy Kaufman and Danny DeVito. And, you know, I mean, these were guys who either made it big or, in the case of Andy Kaufman, would have most likely made it big as an actor. But the same as you, my heart really is with uh, Tony Maselli in Who's the Boss, that TV series. And for the same reason. Uh, (laughs) You know, but... At the time, you know, uh, that ran from 84 to 92. She's about the same age as us. She is. Uh, I think she falls right in between our two ages somewhere. And why I can't come up with her name right this moment is... Alyssa Milano. Alyssa Milano. uh, Playing Samantha Maselli. Yes. But I always liked the way that they portrayed Tony as a father. Because he was kind of scatterbrained, as unfortunately a lot of dads and husbands were in the 80s sitcoms. But... He was always, you never questioned whether or not he cared for the kids and cared for what he did, you know. But other than those two things, I mean, he's done, he was in Meet Wally Sparks. He was in uh, Angry Men, A Brooklyn State of Mind, Cloud Nine, which I'm not familiar with. But um, he's got a new movie, or actually a movie that came out last year called Sebastian Says, which is actually one that I want to see um, after reading about it. It just seems like a, a neat movie. He plays a... Get this, he plays an Italian grandfather. Okay. I know, it's a shocker. Um, But yeah, so a little trivia on Tony Danza. Um, He broke his back skiing in Utah in 1993 and has plates, rods, and screws in his spine. And he also lost his house uh, in the Northridge quake on January 17th, 1994, which would be in Sacramento, no, San Francisco. So that was the one that shook during the World Series and all that kind of, No, that wouldn't have been during the World Series. I must have them different. But anyway, this was a neat little one. He is actually behind the wheel of the cab that's driving across the bridge during the beginning credits of every episode of Taxi. Okay. So he's the guy driving the taxi. He was friends. He wrote to the late Tupac Shakur while he was in prison, uh, and the two later became friends. Uh, He made his professional boxing debut on August 3rd, 1976 by knocking out Earl Harris in the first round. Danza scored first-round knockouts over Earl Harris, Joe Marcetti, Ralph Garcia, Ray Bryant, Tony Rodriguez, Billy Perez, and Max Horde. The character Tony Banta in Taxi was originally called Phil Banta. And then, like we talked about, the, the producers didn't think he would answer to the name Phil. That's about it. I think that about covers it. Oh, here's one. His first Hollywood girlfriend was Taxi co-star Mary Lou Henner. Good taste. Yeah, I would say so. So there you go. 
What are, what, are, what do you got? Well, actually, I have a follow-up on Tony. Okay. Um, I don't remember the name of the movie, but I don't think it was one of the ones you listed off. But in I remember in the mid to maybe late 80s, uh, he did a movie where, go figure, he played a single dad of, da- this time, daughters. He had two daughters. And the plot of the movie was a cross between the standard Ugly Duckling motif with the girls and the usual oh single dad let's fix him up okay well there's there's a couple that he did in the 80s uh he did cannonball run 2 which i didn't mention because it's a horrible movie true the original is much better he did doing life and freedom fighter in the 80s it looks like now i might have cut some of these out because he actually has a number of credits to his name uh 49 of them actually and i don't have those all in my notes so right one of the reasons I remember that particular movie is because the actress who played his oldest daughter, who first undergoes the Ugly Duckling transformation, is Amy Dolan's daughter of former Monkees drummer and lead singer Mickey Dolan. Okay. All right. Cool. So, and I was a huge Monkees fan growing up, and I'm like, oh, cool. There's a connection between one of my favorite bands and one of my favorite shows. There you go. All right. So what do you got? All right. Next up, I'm going from... Big burly pugilists to teeny tiny skaters. Mary Lou Henner. No, she wasn't a skater. She was, no, she a, was a gymnast. She was a gymnast. So, Mary Lou Retton. You're getting Mary confused with Mary Lou Henner, the actress. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I am going with Tara Kristen Lipinski. Never heard of her. She was born in 1982 in Philadelphia. So, when I first saw her in the Olympics and everything, you see Lipinski, figure skating, you usually assumed Russian. But no, she's American. Okay. She holds, still today, uh, the record for being uh, the youngest ever world figure skating champ. She won that at 14 years, 9 months, and 10 days. Wow. And the youngest ever Olympic individual ladies singles gold medalist at 15 years, 8 months, and 10 days. So she was good young. Yeah, I mean, at either of those ages, I couldn't have, I might have been able to hit a baseball by then. Mm Mm-hmm. Her athletic career as a figure skater, obviously she did a a lot from a very young age, uh, doing the world championships, doing the U.S. championships, the Olympics. She was also very active as a professional in some of the promotions and programs that came around after that, like Ice Capades, Stars on Ice, things like that. Um, She ended up dropping out of that after a series of injuries. Which just goes to show you that even a non-contact sport like figure skating, a lot of people say, well, it's not a real sport. You're just kind of out there goofing off. No, it's very physically demanding, especially at that high level when you're doing all of those jumps and twists. Because think about it, when you do the like a triple or now some people are actually starting to land quadruple loops and jumps, you're launching yourself off a slick, unstable surface. You're rotating multiple times, you're landing while rotating still on that slick surface, and you're digging into it, so you're stopping your foot while the rest of your body is turning. And that's how a lot of professional football players blow their ACL. I can see that. I mean, I remember trying to strap on skates as a kid and just not fall down. Yes. Let alone jumping and and twisting and turning and... Yeah, so I I give them all the props in the world. That's definitely a talent that needs to be created and made and held on to. It's not something that I would guess most people come by naturally. No. So her acting career primarily consisted of one-offs, guest shots on TV shows where she was actually playing a character rather than just a cameo, even though she had her fair share of those. Usually, and you see this a lot with people who were famous for something else getting into acting who are or who are brought in as actors they are for whatever reason the focal guest character of a particular episode and in her case it was tv shows ranging from malcolm in the middle still standing seventh heaven uh touched by an angel are you afraid of the dark uh she had a small part in the movie vanilla sky with tom cruise it's actually one of the movies I haven't seen. It just seems really out there for my tastes. Yeah, it could be. But one thing I did find interesting was she was a long-running voice actress in two series. 
uh, one called Generation Jets, which I've never heard of. Yeah, I haven't either. And one that you might probably recognize. What's new, Scooby-Doo? <laughs> and what part did she play in Scooby-Doo? It didn't say. Huh. So it'd be inter- kind of interesting to find out. I it was Old Man know. Smithers! <laughs> it could be. Given what I remember of her voice from interviews and commentator roles and such, she would strike me as possibly a Daphne, but probably her most successful acting role was on the um, soap opera The Young and the Restless. Okay. She had a recurring role. Uh, The character's name was Marnie Kowalski. She originally was written in as a one-off character as the friend of one of the younger main actresses okay and she did so well and the cast responded so well to her and the audience responded so well to her that they wrote her in for more more scenes more episodes and she ended up doing quite a few of them okay yeah that's kind of the way it happens sometimes yes in fact in the tv series chuck which i have talked to you about i have you watched it i have watched uh, i think the first two seasons i've gotten through all right so you're familiar with Captain Awesome. Yes. And uh, the actor who plays his character's name isn't Captain Captain Awesome. That's the nickname, a sarcastic Wilson. nickname several of the other characters give him. And he was originally written in as kind of a beefcake. He's a well-muscled, well-in-shape, attractive guy. And he was there to be the romantic interest for the main character's sister. Right. But... He was so good at it, and the lines that he was given, he made so much of, that they ended up expanding his role until he became another principal character that's in almost every episode. Yeah, and they end up, actually, they marry him to the sister. Yes, and they make him a spy. They do make him a spy. You're right. Maybe I have seen the whole series. I think that comes up in season three or four. I don't think it's season five. Okay, so I probably haven't made it through all the way, but I was to the part where he was a... Secret agent, and he has to be the worst secret agent ever. He is. He's an excellent cardiothoracic surgeon, but he's a lousy spy. And kind of an idiot. At being a spy, yes. And he's a little clueless. Although, Bruce Boxleitner plays his dad, and apparently the whole family is awesome. And so they just have this head in the clouds, there's nothing we can't do because we are this family and we are awesome type of mentality. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, I yep. guess. Which, when you're rich and attractive in California, tends to go with the territory. Yeah. But anyway, so enough about Chuck. Yep. <laughs> so, but that's what I have about Miss Lipinski. Okay. My next one's going to take a little bit of time. His name is Dwayne Douglas Johnson. No one the world over as The Rock, or Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or... You know, whatever. Now, I've got like eight pages of notes on Dwayne. I'm not going to sit here and read them all because we would go insane. Yes. Not to mention this would be a three-hour podcast. He broke into the wrestling entertainment business. He was the first third-generation wrestler employed by the WWE at the time, the WWF. But going forward, I will just call it the WWE regardless of what era I'm talking about just because... That's what they call themselves now. Um, He broke in in 1996 as Rocky Maivea, which was a combination of his father, Rocky Johnson, and his grandfather's ring name, which was King Maivea, because they are of Samoan descent. So he took the two names and they stuck it together. He didn't want to do it, but Vince McMahon talked him into it, probably by saying, if you don't do it, I'm going to take all your money. He uh, started that way. He came in as Rocky Maivea. He um, was a face throughout most of his career but he also played the heel quite well and did it um in a group uh called the corporation and then he became the people's champion and the big thing was in 1997 he was with a group called the nation of domination which was uh himself and uh farouk and Dilo brown and kama so they created this stable called the nation of domination so it was four black guys or four blackish guys and they kind of dressed in the whole you know uh african-american style they had the little hats and the i don't know what they're called the shikis the shikis okay so they wore those and they came out and they had uh african colors on their tights and that kind of stuff and when the rock turned on the nation of domination he stopped talking in first person and started talking in the third person and that stuck with his character 
all the way throughout. And in fact, a lot of times, even now, even if he's not being The Rock when he's being interviewed or something, he talks in the third person. He will talk about Dwayne. And as much as I like him as an actor and as much as I liked his work in the ring, that is one of the most annoying traits anybody can have. I mean, I get it. I get it for what he did. So anyway, so then he became the people's champion, and that was a gimmick he ran for about three years. Then he started doing his work in Hollywood. And at first he was a wrestler who did movies for the WWE because they have their own film studio. They put out their own movies, this kind of stuff. And that's how it started. So he did that, and then he departed, quote-unquote, the WWE to go to Hollywood, which kind of made him into a bad guy again, into a heel again. And then after that he came back and he did sporadic appearances because once he hit the big screen, it wasn't long before everybody wanted him. Because, I mean, let's face it, he's a talented actor. He is, and he's smart. He is. He's extremely smart. So he did this for a while. For like five years, he would do movies and he would, you know, he'd go six months, go do a movie, come back, wrestle for six months and as a face most of the time. And then in 2011, he came back and he had a feud with John Cena, who right now is is the modern rock. Let's put it that way. He's the guy. You know, he's the big name. He's the one that everybody wants to see. They did a they did a match at WrestleMania 27 in in which uh, John Cena was actually uh, put over by The Rock because they were having problems with Cena's image. So The Rock lost to him. Now. Anybody out there? No, I don't think wrestling is real. I think it's very much scripted. I think it would be a very, very dangerous sport if it wasn't scripted. So when I talk about this as if it's really happening, I'm talking in storyline. I'm not talking that me sitting here thinks, oh my God, John Cena and The Rock, they fought each other and they were really punching each other in the head. I really don't believe that. It's, it's, I enjoy watching wrestling to this day, but it's like, a male soap opera. I've heard it called that so many times, and True. it really is. It, it's you got storylines, you've got interactions, you've got all this stuff, and they just throw some punching each other in it, you know, in the middle of it. So then he came back, he feuded with John Cena. Then um, he actually got the title one more time in uh, 2012, held it from 2012 to 2013, and now he is what they call a WWE ambassador which means he's still employed by the WWE. He still gets a check every time he shows up and does anything for the WWE, but it's a part-time basis and it's not, he doesn't get in the ring. He doesn't don the tights anymore. He just, he goes and he does live events. Like he'll be at WrestleMania. He's at WrestleMania every year. We may not see him on camera while we're watching it, but he's there. You know, um, there's a lot of them. A lot of the old guys, Shawn Michaels, Stone Cold Steve Austin. A lot of these guys are ambassadors. Their bodies are too beat up from this because even though it's scripted, it's still a very dangerous sport. Indeed. Necks get broken, you know, muscles get torn, things like this, they happen. So they're, you know, they're all what they call ambassadors and they still draw people. So if you're going to go to WrestleMania Live and you're lucky enough to get one of those tickets, that whole week beforehand, they have just tons and tons of stuff that they do. I'm just going to run down some of the stuff that he did while he was a wrestler. So this is kind of his his uh, athletic background. But one thing before I get to that is, besides wrestling, he also played in the Canadian Football League, and he was a linebacker, I want to say, I believe it was a linebacker for the University of Miami. So Either linebacker or defensive lineman. Yeah, I can't remember. Did, did you run across who took his spot when he Yeah, Warren Sapp. Warren Sapp. I actually, I think it's in my list of, um, uh, of trivia pieces, but... So, The Rock was the WCW World Champion twice. He was the WWF, WWE Champion, uh, Undisputed Champion eight times. He was the WWF Intercontinental Champion twice. The WWF Tag Team Champion five times. Three times with Mankind, one time with The Undertaker, and one time with Chris Jericho. He won the Deadly Games WWF Championship Tournament in 1998. He won the Royal Rumble in 2000. Uh, he was a triple crown champion, which means he held the world heavyweight, the intercontinental, and the tag team champions. He was the only the sixth person in WWE history to do that. And he won nine Slammy Awards, which are kind of like their... He got it for Best Actor, Game Changer of the Year, Return of the Year. So, you know, those kind of things. Just kind of like, like movie awards, but based right. on wrestling. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a rundown of his of his career with the WWE. 
Now, of all the guys that I had and all the guys that I, I did research on, he has the largest uh, roll of credits of any of them with 98. I took out, when I was doing this list, I took out anything that had to do with wrestling, whether it was, you know, whether it was a pay-per-view or anywhere where he did commentary, anything like that. I stripped those out and I kind of went through the different, different movies and stuff. So the big ones, well, number one, the one that... I saw, and when I saw it, I laughed so hard, was he played his father, Rocky Johnson, in an episode of that 70s show. So he played his dad. They put a big old fro on him like his dad wore, you know, during the 70s when he wrestled. And it was it was hilarious. It was one of the best episodes of that series, I think, for a lot of reasons. But one of them, the, the Rock was in it. And another one was the fact that Eric gets in a fight and his dad's, like, proud of him for, like, kicking somebody's ass. And it was just like... And with Red, you know, for Red to be proud of Eric or, well, anybody was slim. So there was that. He played the Scorpion King in The Mummy Returns. Yes. And then he played the Scorpion King in The Scorpion King. Well, he played Matthias. I take that back. He wasn't the Scorpion. Well, he did become the Scorpion King. But anyway, he played Matthias um, in a movie called Walking Tall. Have you seen it? Yes. He plays Chris Vaughn. And, oh, my God, when I saw him in that movie, that's when I went... Oh my God, he can act. Yes, he can. You know, it was it was a little amazing actually that you know used to this guy who stands in the ring and just you know bellows out a lot of nonsense. He really became an actor and he can really act. And that was really the movie I saw where I went, you know, this is this is kind of cool. He was in Doom, um, which he claims to be the worst movie ever made. He was in uh, Get Smart as Agent 23, Mm -hmm. uh, Race to Witch Mountain. He was in The Tooth Fairy, one of my other favorite rock movies, The Tooth Fairy, where he plays a guy named Derek who ends up being The Tooth Fairy. So seeing The Rock being able to take himself lightly enough that he can get in a pair of pink tutu and a, you know, and a, a, I don't even want you, like a ballerina top. It was just funny. And the interaction between, I think it was him and... uh, I want to say Martin Short, but that's not right. Anyway, but he's like, he's got this forgetful powder. And he's like, what is forgetful powder doing? He's like, this. And he throws it in his face. And then he's like, what do you got there? Forgetful power, powder. What's forgetful powder do? This. And they do it like four or five times. And it's just hilarious. So then there was that. Uh, he was in uh, Fast Five, which is in the Fast and the Furious uh, uh, series of movies. He was in Fast and the Furious 6. He was in Furious 7. He is in Furious 8. And it is supposedly he'll be in 9 and 10 as well, uh, playing the role of Hobbs. He was in Hercules as Hercules. I believe that was cartoon? No. No. Oh, did they do a live action? They did a live action version, and I remember he did an interview where they were talking about it because he'd actually hurt himself wrestling before they were due to start. Okay. And the doctors told him that either he pushed back production by six months to have surgery... Or they just do physical therapy, and he'd always, going back to your point about wrestlers get hurt. Right. um, He opted just to do physical therapy and not have the surgery, and they said, well, just bear in mind, you're going to lose some range of motion and some strength in the arm because of the injury if you don't have it surgically repaired. All right, so he was in a movie called Gem and the Holograms. He was in Central Intelligence in 2016. He played Maui, Moana. Yep, the new Disney cartoon. Yep, the new Disney cartoon. And what he's set to come out in right now is San Andreas 2, uh, Journey 3. Uh, he has been announced as Doc Savage, and I believe Doc Savage is a comic book movie? I'm not sure. The Doc Savage was actually a 1920s pulp novel series. Oh, okay, maybe that's what it is. Yes. He's going to be in The Fate of the Furious, which is uh, uh, 8 in the in the list he's going to be in baywatch this year yes uh they are remaking jumanji he's playing dr smolder bravestone he's also going to be in shazam they're going to remake shazam as far as that goes i mean the guy has done so much he is obviously a great actor he was great in the ring as basically an actor i mean and i think that's why so many wrestlers can transition to movies is because they're basically acting already so a little bit of trivia all right, here, we get our answer. He was um, a member of Miami's NCAA National Championship football team in 1991. Later in his career, he played as Warren Sapp's backup at defensive tackle. So Warren Sapp must have made the transition to the to the offensive line later on. 
No, Warren Sapp was always a defensive lineman. He was a nose tackle for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a number of years. You're right. I'm an idiot. There, There's a wax figure likeness of himself at Madame Tussauds Museum. He owns the right to the name The Rock, including logos, phrases, etc. The right to the name The Rock were previously owned by WWE, uh, which was the main reason why Vince McMahon w- received executive producer credits in some of The Rock's first films. He originally chose the, the ring name Flex Cavana. Uh, because he didn't want to seem like he was trading off his family's legacy, Rocky Johnson, his father, and High Chief Peter Fene Maivea, uh, his grandfather. Ironically, WWE officials came up with Rocky Maivea after they felt Flex Cavana wasn't exactly a great name. I think they did good there. Yes, indeed. <laughs> he was good friends with uh, Michael Clark Duncan uh, from the Green Mile yes. and a lot of other things. Who was in uh, The Scorpion King. Yes, he was. Um, in fact, uh, I was reading at one point they were fighting. The Rock threw a punch and uh, Michael walked right into it. And, they, you know, there's not supposed to be contact. Right. They just make it look good. But I guess he walked right into it, took it on the chin, and The Rock dropped him. And that's a big guy. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, he played Kingpin in the fortunately forgettable version of Daredevil that they made in theaters. Oh, okay. So um, not only is was his father Rocky Johnson a wrestler, but his grandfather, three uncles, and six cousins have been in wrestling too. He has dual citizenship, United States and Samoan. He stated that the film adaptation of Doom was a complete failure and that the movie did a huge disservice to the fans of the video game franchise. Is that... That just, to me, that seems... Uh, that That's a telling statement from someone in the movie to say, we did horrible. Um, but I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up here because I've been talking for much too long. Well, but he has quite a lot that he's done. So it, you don't want to give short shrift to it. Right. Well, my next one is actually going to continue in the vein of wrestlers turned actors. Okay. I'm going to go a little further back, however. All right. Not not too far back. Um, There's a lot to choose from here. Yes. I'm going to go back to a a wrestler that I actually used to watch growing up. Jesse Ventura. No. And it's actually someone that I've met. Roddy Piper. No. I am talking, of course, about... Terry Jean Bollea. Yeah, sir. The Hulkster. Hulk Hogan. Yes. Born in 1953 in Augusta, Georgia. Here is my trivia question for you. Okay. How did he get the nickname Hulk? Have you ever heard that story? No, I I haven't. Now, a little side note. I met Hulk Hogan once long enough that I shook his hand. Mm Mm-hmm. So, he's a big dude. He Uh, is. He's about uh, 6'9". Yeah, he's big. And I've got big hands, but there's only been twice in my life that I've shook somebody's hand and my hand has disappeared inside. Hulk Hogan was one of them, and Sergeant Slaughter was the other one. Two wrestlers. Yes, and they both have these huge hands. But anyway, go on. Okay, so he got the nickname Hulk because uh, he was on a talk show early in his career with the actor Lou Ferrigno. Okay. Of course, Lou Ferrigno is most famously known for playing... The Incredible Hulk. ...on the TV series with uh, Bill Bruce Bixby. Ba- Bill Bixby. I yes. was going to say Bruce Banner. <laughs> yes, Bill, Bill Bixby played, although on the show they called him David Bruce Banner, and they, he went by David right. in all of his aliases, and then Lou Ferrigno was the Hulk. When they were on the, the talk show, the uh, host was talking to Lou Ferrigno first, and then they brought out Hulk Hogan, and... The TV host made the comment that, I mean, okay, Lou Ferrigno's a big guy. Yeah. I mean, he is a, a professional bodybuilder. He is uh, very muscular. But if memory serves, he's only about 6'1", 6'2". Okay. One of the reasons that it worked on the show is that Bill Bixby was actually fairly short and slender. Hulk Hogan dwarfed Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. And the TV uh, talk show host made the comment, okay, you're much more the Hulk than he is. And it stuck. And a few years later, a producer of one of the the wrestling shows, I don't think it was McMahon himself, it was one of the commentators, Uh, it was one of Hulk Hogan's first big victories, uh, occurred on January 23rd, 1984. And that was the first time somebody used the phrase Hulkamania. Okay. So uh, that that shows you how how far back Hogan goes. Uh, But as I said, he's born in Augusta, Georgia, 1953. 
uh, began pro wrestling in the, the mid-80s. Prior to that, he actually did some of the smaller local circuits in Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, etc. He actually was a pitcher in high school. Okay. And he was scouted by both the Yankees and the Reds. And he chose professional wrestling. Uh, it was kind of chosen for him. He actually uh, suffered an injury to his throwing arm in high school. Okay. And w- was not able to recover enough to become a pitcher again. So he, uh, after uh, graduating from high school, he attended the University of South Florida and dropped out. But he didn't drop out to be a wrestler. Dropped out to be a bassist. He and a couple of his buddies dropped out of college to play the local club scene. He uh, actually plays a fretless bass. Okay. Uh, if any of you aren't overly familiar with music, the frets refer to the little divisions on the neck of a guitar or a bass that tell you where the different ranges are. So if you play without frets, you're playing essentially without a roadmap to where you're supposed to put your fingers. So basically he, he plays by sound. By He doesn't really play notes per se. Not necessarily. Um, for a number of years, the bass player for Metallica played a fretless bass. Okay. And uh, in one interview I remember running across, he said that he liked it because it made him focus more on the music. So it, okay. it was more, almost more of a technical challenge for him. Uh, but anyways, he was discovered while playing bass by wrestling promoters because he was so big. I mean, he, he was tall and um, he had friends who were bodybuilders, so he worked out in the gym with them. And he has al- apparently always been really big. 24-inch pythons, brother. Yep. And if you think about it, well, if he wasn't quite so bulked up, but he was still that tall, I mean, think about Randy Johnson, the baseball pitcher. Oh, yeah. Okay, he was, I think he was about 6'8", 6'9", as well. And just all that torsion coming down the mound on his fastball. But it also would indicate why he might have gotten injured through his arm out. Right, yeah. Too much force. So... As I said, he worked his way up in small regional circuits. He also wrestled from 1980 to 1985 in Japan. And a lot of people made a a big deal out of the fact that when he wrestled in Japan, even though he was still Hulk Hogan, his wrestling style was completely different. He used actually a lot more traditional Greco-Roman and traditional freestyle wrestling moves. Okay. And his signature takedown move, like in WWE... He has that leg drop where, like, he throws somebody off the ropes, and when they come back, he leaps towards them and puts a leg up and catches them with the leg and then drops them down on top of them. In Japan, he used an arm hook kind of like a clothesline, and he okay. would catch them and throw them down that way. But they wrestle differently in Japan. Even to this day, It's yes. if you go to Japan and go to a non-WWE, you go to, like, a an IPWG wrestling session or something like that, it's completely different than watching it in America. Right. So I can get that. I can understand why he would use a different style. Yes. While being a wrestler, and he's gone through multiple incarnations as a wrestler, as Dwayne The Rock Johnson has. Yep. Um, but in TV and movies, he's also done similar. A lot of people know him for his reality TV show, Hogan Knows Best, which is about him and his family and the trials of being a famous dad raising two kids in Florida, um, especially a, a very headstrong daughter who ended up with her own reality TV show spinoff. Brooke. Brooke knows best, yes. But some of the movies he's done, he, he's run the gamut kind of like The Rock from uh, fighting or action-oriented movies to more lighthearted family fare. He did Rocky Three, and he did No Holds Barred, but then he went on to do Suburban Commando, Yep. Mr. Nanny. Mr. Nanny. Santa with Muscles. I have not seen that one. I have not either. And Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain. That sounds horrible. Yes, I'm sure it does. <laughs> Apart from his reality TV show, he also has done a lot of TV. He actually had his own TV series where he, he wasn't Hulk Hogan, but he, he was, and he probably got the series as a result of his fame and people thought that he'd draw them, but... Um, it was the series Thunder in Paradise. I remember seeing a few episodes of that okay. when I was younger. It actually wasn't too bad. Okay. It, it was kind of like the, the Stephen J. Cannell series, um, like uh, Pink Thunder, which had that pink helicopter that the three guys ran. There were, not T.J. but like Lee, the $6 million man guy. Oh. 
um, he did the Fall Guy, where he was a, a stunt man who became like a detective. Okay. Doing things with okay. Um, Heather Thomas and Adrian Zmed, who then went on. No, Adrian Zmed was in T.J. Hooker. Sorry, I'm getting my series mixed up. But anyways, he did Thunder in Paradise, which ran for a while. Um, he did a TV movie called The Ultimate Weapon. He did two TV movies with Carl Weathers that were supposed to be pilot treatments for a new series um, called Shadow Warriors. The first one was Assault on Devil's Island, and the second one was Hunt for the Death Merchant. Okay. Uh, he did uh, an appearance on a kids' show called Kids Against Crime. He did a couple episodes of The A-Team. He was on Suddenly Susan. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, and he was on an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. That makes sense. Yes. So, and he is also currently a voice actor. Yes. Um, he's done stuff for Robot Chicken and American Dad and uh, the Adult Swim uh, series China, Illinois. China, Illinois. Yeah. Not familiar with that I'm one. I'm not familiar. I'm familiar with Robot Chicken and American Dad. Yeah, I am. Stuff. Yeah. Anyways, my meeting Hulk Hogan story. Okay. Back in, uh, this would, I think this would be December 92. All right. Um. My best friend from high school was going to Boston University in their physical therapy program. And part of the program is you had to do six-week internships in various locations. All right. And this particular time, he had won an internship with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Okay. And I have family down in Florida, and I usually go down and visit them all the time. So what we did this time was uh, Christmas Day. We had Christmas with our families and everything. We lived next door to each other, so it was pretty easy. Okay. And we packed up the car and started driving. We had uh, friends who were snowbirds, so they actually lived on the other side of me from my friend. Okay. And so during the warm months, they were in Boston. During the cold months, they were in Florida. And we arranged with them that um, we would both stay with them for the week in between Christmas and New Year's. And then January 2nd, he had to start his internship. So we, we had a week off to kind of goof around and do whatever. But um, his older brother was a former Golden Gloves boxer. He was a gym rat at the time. I was a gym rat. And so we were in Largo, Florida, which is just south of Clearwater, uh, not too far from Tampa, St. Pete. Okay. Which was where Hogan, I didn't know it at the time, but that's where Hogan was living. Right. And we found this gym down the street from the house we were staying at. And we were there for a week solid. We were there every morning at 7 o'clock when they opened. And we were usually the only ones there. But because we were the only ones there, we had the run of the place. We talked to the guy at the desk who turned out to be the owner. And the end of the week where we come in as usual and we walk in and somebody's down in the far corner working out already. We're like, it's seven o'clock. The door's just opened. How's somebody here? And we, we went up to the desk to check in and the manager said, hey, guys, I just want to let you know, I know you're legit workout guys because you've been here all week and you're here for like three hours at a stretch and you hit everything but that's my buddy terry you probably know him as hulk hogan he helped me buy this place so whenever he's in town and he needs to work out he gives me a call and i open the place up early and he comes in so that way he can avoid like the crowds, the crowds and everything right. and he said i, I just want to ask you a, a favor can you give him his space um, he'll probably rotate around to, to some of the equipment, and I know you use some of the equipment, but if you wouldn't mind mixing up your routine a little, just don't bug him. I'd really appreciate it. We're like, no sweat. He's working out. We're working out. We're good. So we, we do our thing. He does his thing. We're there for about three hours. Uh, about two hours in, I guess he finished his set or whatever. He goes up to the desk, talks to the, the manager, and then he comes over and talks to us. Sweet. And he says, hey, guys, I talked to my buddy. He, he told me that he told you the story. And that he asked you not to bother me. And I really appreciate you respecting my space and, and respecting his request. And I don't want to take up too much of your time because I've been kind of keeping an eye on you. And I can see that you're serious about what you're doing. Like I'm serious about mine. So I just want to come over and say thanks. And shook our hands and, and yes. Hand Huge go bye hit, bye. Yes. Right, yeah, he's... And I'm just like, wow, this is a big dude. But he was, as, as I said, I want, I didn't... I don't think I made a complete idiot of myself. We didn't ask for autographs. Um, he didn't offer. He, he just came over and talked to us like regular guys at the gym. Yeah. And I don't think I blathered too badly. I, I think if I had, my friend would have called me on it and razzed me about it endlessly for at least the rest of the day, and he didn't. Okay. But 
I remember seeing like Hulk Hogan, he walks into the ring, rips the shirt. He's got that whole bombastic persona in the ring. And then you meet him in person. He's the nicest guy. And he was just, it, it really gave me an insight into the, the reality behind the facade. And more so than the movies of his that I've enjoyed and the TV shows of his that I've enjoyed and seeing him wrestling that I've enjoyed, that I think is what I like best about him, what I respect most about him, was that insight and to a certain extent that lesson. Yeah, and, and that's that's amazing. Like I said, I met him long enough to shake his hand at one point. Um, I actually ran into him in a parking lot after a live event 10 years ago or so, 10, 15 years ago. I went to a lot of live events. I probably have been to 10 or 12 of them in my, you know, in a five, six-year period. I ran into a lot of, I, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of wrestlers in that quick, you know, hey, you're so-and-so, shake a hand, you know, maybe get an autograph kind of thing. But I never go prepared to get autographs because I'm like, I'm not going to meet anybody. And then the the coolest one, a quick story here is the, the coolest one I ever did was, I don't know if you're familiar with the Hardy Boys? Yes. Okay, so we were at a live event in Minneapolis. I would go with a friend of mine, um, and uh, we were trying to get out of the arena without going through all the crowds and stuff, and so we're kind of, and we get lost. Oh, you're talking about the wrestlers, the Hardy Boys. Yes. Not the detective novels or the TV series with Parker Stevenson and Sean Cassidy. Really? yes i'm talking about the wrestling okay i am familiar with them as well okay at that point they were wrestling with lita and they were team extreme or the extreme team or whatever they call themselves and we come around this corner and we are where we should not be and how we got there to this day i still couldn't tell you but there stands matt and jeff and lita and so I got to meet them because that was that was really cool. I mean, at the time I was I was big marks for them, and it was really cool. And I got to shake their hands and talk to them for like a minute or whatever. But it was it was kind of amazing. So when you get to meet these bigger than life people, and and especially like this where it's not, I mean, I met Matt and Jeff and and Lita the the wrestlers because they were still in that. It was in, in that world. Right in that world. So to meet them outside of that, that's just that's cool. That's really cool. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here now. We've got a lot more, and I've got a feeling at some point in the future, since we only do this monthly, maybe a year or two down the road, we might come back to this and look at at some of the other ones that we didn't get to. But for now, we're going to call this the end. Uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next month. Adios.